We're continuing in our series on 1 Corinthians. And uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is incredible. It's kind of like out of the frying pan into the fire from paragraph to paragraph. Uh, I mean, it opens up so encouraging with all of the uh, grace that God has poured out on the church that we are enriched with all the blessings of our spiritual gifts and everything God has poured out. The gospel that empowers us, you know, really encouraging stuff, those first few messages and the cornerstone of Jesus Christ that the church is built on, you know, and then it's like disunity, sexual impurity, (laughs) and today we get to talk about judging one another. Yay! (laughs) So like I say, out of the frying pan into the fire once you get into 1 Corinthians, and uh, So it's been an interesting series. I'm just going to open up in prayer as we sort of get into this discussion and uh, about and what Paul is teaching in terms of how we are to judge in the church. Let's pray. Father God, we just give you thanks for your word. I ask uh, especially for your blessing this morning as we look at this topic, which uh, in the time of Corinth and in today was just hot button issue. How do we judge? Should we judge? And what is judging? And what is it all about? And so, Father, we just lift this up to you and ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through your word in Christ Jesus. Amen. So I thought, I didn't plan this, but I thought about it this morning. Maybe we just have a little open session before I begin here to talk about judging. It's a hot-button issue in society, isn't it? Right? What do you think of when I just say, judge somebody? What do you think? Somebody's wrong, exactly. If you have to judge, somebody's done something wrong. What else do you think? What, how, in terms of just out there, judging, the topic of judging? Scared. scared of judging, yeah. Scared to judge or scared to be judged? <laughs> Unaccepting? That's right. There's a certain hostility to it, right? If you judge? Judgmental. Yeah, judgmental, right? So is judging the same as being judgmental? Are they actually the same thing? Consequences, so, consequences for what's going on, exactly. Hypocrisy, yep. Legalism. Legalism, that's another good one. That's just, these are all good. What's that? Offended. offended, yep. I'm offended if somebody judges me. Yep. Intolerant. Intolerant, yep. So this word judge, like again, I talk about unpacking sometimes, right? When you take the word judge, you can unpack it. And it, when you unpack the word judging, it can mean a lot of things. And almost everything we've said has been negative, right? And that is the way that judging is painted in the world. In fact, it's probably one of the biggest offenses out there. The most known and most popular or best known Bible verse in the past was probably John 3.16, right? Whosoever, you guys know it, right? God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Exactly. What do you think is the most popular verse now in the world? Exactly, right? Matthew 7, 1. And uh, so they love that verse. The world, you know, they might have to Google to find out where it is, but they know those seven words. You're not supposed to judge, right? The church is not supposed to judge. And if you're talking about the world, they would be right. The church is not supposed to judge the world, (laughs) but the church is supposed to judge each other. And we'll get into that as we go on. But let's just take those ideas of judgment and and we'll have to unpack them as we go along. 
So the sermon starts with a little bit of a history lesson to understand the context in judging, the context in Corinth and sort of its similarities to, the, to today. And you remember in Corinth, it's a big metropolitan church. There's lots of different people there from lots of different cultures. They're all newly converted Christians. They all used to be pagans or Jews uh, or just sort of academic Greek philosophers, artsy types, um, academics, all that sort of thing. Greek society, you think of Aristotle and, you know, sitting there philosophizing in the marketplace, and that's essentially what they were. And in Corinth, and you have to understand in Greek society, almost everybody was familiar with the law. If you were over 60, then you were expected to serve as a public defender. So if somebody didn't have a public a defender, then somebody over 60 in the community spent time serving as a public defender in the public courts. If you were over 30, you did jury duty. But jury duty in the, the Greek Roman Empire was not the same as just 12 people that sit in our juries. Most of the time you sat before the 40. Okay, so you took your case to the public courts and you sat before the 40. So there's 40 people on the juror duty. But for larger cases, the juries could reach 600, maybe even more than 1,000 people on jury duty to hear these cases and to, to rule. And they actually, it's very interesting. It's all very sophisticated. I have a picture here as I was researching this. That's how the whole judging thing worked in Greek culture. Um, there's a picture of, uh, of the way they, they selected these, these many people and so this is a jury selection device that was used at the time. And you came in, you had your name written on a little thin piece of lead. It's down on the bottom left. And you put that piece of lead, everybody came in and just randomly put their names into a slot. And then what happened, there was a, a front on it, and uh, they dropped white and black marbles in the top, almost like a Plinko machine. <laughs> and the white and black marbles would fall into different rows. And if a black marble fell on a row, then that row was disqualified, you could go home. If a white marble fell on your row, then you were, that row of 11 was selected for jury duty. So they would select either 11 or 22 or no, 23, or like it was always an odd number, but anyway. So they selected uh, juries depending on how many. So it was all very sophisticated. And then they had these voting tokens on the other side. So once they had heard the case, you would pick either sort of yay or nay, for or against the defendant, and you would drop it in. And it was just by majority. You know, obviously, imagine trying to come to, <laughs> imagine a hung jury, 600 jurors. <laughs> you guys stay at the Holiday Inn until you get it sorted out. No. <laughs> No, it's just majority, but they would vote, and that was, it was all very sophisticated. It was all very sophisticated, and, and the people who were litigating, they spoke for themselves in court, and they may have speech writers to help them prepare a good narrative, and if they wanted to give up some of their speaking time, they could have a friend speak for them, but everybody understood court, and court was like, it was like a, a matter of, of public, just like the rhetorical speakers, the orators who would argue and defend certain moral philosophies, court, the law, was another form of entertainment. Uh, they didn't have Cineplex, and they didn't have Netflix, and so they would go to the public courts, and you would just sit, and you would watch these cases being heard. And so it was just part of the culture, the Greek-Roman culture, that court took place, and people were constantly in court or constantly presiding over court. And so what happened is that the Corinthian church basically brought this form of litigation into their culture. It's just what they knew, Right? And so they took their grievances with church members out into the courts for litigation. And Paul might have somewhat caused this problem himself with his teaching. I don't know, and I don't want to paint him in a bad light, but it's interesting when you read in 1 Corinthians 9 to 13 the way he phrases it, he may have somewhat caused this problem in his earlier teaching, which he now has to correct, and why we have the correction rather than the earlier teaching maybe in Scripture. But, but 
They were taking, they're, they're judging each other out in the public courts rather than within the church to the point where they were even bringing shame on the church and they were defrauding one another, trying to get the upper hand on one another and get whatever advantage or leverage they could in court. And so Paul has to answer this. This is a problem in the Corinthian church that Paul has to answer. So how does Paul answer this in the church? Let's read 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. And this is where I think he might have caused the problem with them not judging each other, but going out into the courts instead. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to, then you would need to come out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even eat to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So the first answer that Paul has to this is, do judge. You are supposed to judge. Don't judge people outside the church. God's taking care of them. You don't have, they don't agree with your moral convictions anyway. They haven't come to your moral conclusions. They haven't arrived at, at the same place you have. You can't judge them. But you are to judge those that are inside the church. And so maybe his earlier teaching was confusing to them because he had said, you know, don't judge these people and don't associate with them. And so he thought, oh, we're not supposed to judge each other. We'll take it to the courts. So he's trying to fix it. So he's saying, no, no, you do judge internally. Don't go out into the world to judge your problems. Judge them internally because you can judge each other. We are to judge, not to condemn people outside of the church, but judge people inside of the church. So just let that sink in for a moment. That's sort of the first thing that needs to sink in, is that the church is a place where people will be judged. Discernment will be used. Situations will be evaluated. And moral conclusions will be drawn. Those moral conclusions will be articulated. And they'll be acted upon. Now, why did I say it that way? I said it that way because I think when people in the world especially, they will usually say somewhat self-righteously, well, I don't judge. I'm not a person that judges. Well, what do they mean by that? How do we unpack what that means? Does that mean that they have no discernment? Like, we live in a world where we have to evaluate things every day. I have to evaluate who I go into business with. I have to evaluate who I'm going to marry. I have to evaluate whether my son has done right or wrong. We're always evaluating. I have to evaluate people in order to come to conclusions So when they say, I don't judge, they can't mean, I never evaluate anybody. Because clearly we evaluate all the time. We can't function without evaluating. Okay, so maybe they don't mean that. Maybe they mean, I do evaluate, but I don't come to any moral conclusion. Well, that's not true either, right? When you evaluate a situation, you make a decision, you come to a moral conclusion, you think it's right or you think it's wrong. You're judging. You're saying, I think that person's way off base or I think they're right on track. I like Duck Dynasty or I don't like like Duck Dynasty, right? You know, I'm a cat person, not a dog person, right? Or my husband's right or my husband's wrong, right? We evaluate and then we come to a moral conclusion. So they can't mean, I mean, they're being dishonest if they say they don't judge. They mean they don't ever come to a moral conclusion. They come to a moral conclusion. Everybody does. So maybe what they mean is, is they do evaluate. They do come to a moral conclusion. They simply don't articulate it. When they say, I don't judge, what they really mean is, I don't voice my judgments. Well, that might be true. It might be true that they keep their judgments to themselves, but they can't kid themselves and say they don't evaluate and they don't judge. 
and they don't arrive at moral conclusions. They do. And they certainly can't mean that they don't act on their moral conclusions. They may not articulate them, but everybody acts on their moral conclusions. You order your life based on the conclusions you've made from your evaluation. You decide whether to marry that person or not. You decide whether you're right or wrong in the dispute with your spouse. You, know, you decide whether you're going to be grumpy all day or whether you're going to go to them and ask for forgiveness because you were wrong. You do act on your moral conclusions. And so when people out there say, well, I don't judge, I'm not that type of person, all they can really mean is, is they don't articulate their judgments. Because they do evaluate, they do come to moral conclusions, and they do act and order their life on those conclusions. They judge. But they may not articulate them. In other words, they don't say what their judgments are. Which can be good, because you don't want to come across as judgmental, which I agree. I don't think the Bible ever says we're supposed to be judgmental. But the danger of not articulating your honest judgments is that then you just judge in secret. It's like, I'm not judgmental vocally, I'm just judgmental in my head. And I treat people in a certain way based on my moral conclusions, I just don't tell them why I'm treating them that way. Oh yeah, that's better. (laughs) So let that sink in for a minute. In the church, the church is a place where you will be judged. The world is a place where you will be judged. But the point is, the church is a place where you will be judged rightly. Hopefully, you won't be judged silently and in some sense of self-righteous superiority where I'm drawing moral conclusions about you, but I'm not telling you, and I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to act a certain way towards you. That's the wrong kind of judgment. That is the type of judgment that I find in the world and not the kind of judgment we want in the church. We want discernment to be used. We want to be evaluated and evaluate situations, and we want to come to moral conclusions that are in line with Scripture, and then we want to articulate and act upon those moral conclusions. So when you join Team Jesus, when you join the family of God, then you play by those family rules, and God's family affirms transparency and accountability and wholeness in relationships, and people have the right to judge you in church. A church that's acting rightly will judge rightly. And so right now, you're mentally flipping through Bible verses or Googling them. And I know you're saying, but, 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 just save Matthew 7, 1 and save Luke 6, 37. We will get to those. (laughs) There is an answer to those, and they don't conflict with what Paul is saying here. So Paul says, do judge, but then it's judge rightly. Do judge rightly. And he goes on from Corinthians 5, where he's talking about the purity of the church and having to judge and draw moral conclusions about the behavior of people in the church. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 6, and he expands on this topic in 1 Corinthians 6, and he talks about grievances that the church has. And how do you deal with all these grievances that just come from being in a family of several hundred people? So let's read 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8, and see where that gets us. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So what is the right way to judge? I've unpacked, I think, about five things here. The first one is to have the right perspective, and the key word there is trivial. And so Paul says, it's interesting, he uses the word trivial. He says, Paul concedes, interesting layer in the first sentence, Paul concedes there's real grievances in the church. He says, you have grievances, but then he immediately calls those grievances trivial. (laughs) And that's awesome, frankly. Uh, (laughs) These are things that Christians are going to court over, so they're probably just more than just relational offenses, right? It's more than just, you know, somebody did something I don't like, and so I'm upset. So this is something that people are willing to go to court over, and Paul's calling them trivial. Somebody owes somebody rent money, somebody didn't get paid, maybe somebody said something slanderous, somebody feels their rights were offended, things that should be settled properly, but Paul says they're trivial. And really, the grievances that we have in church very often are trivial, even in our context. Usually the grievances we have are not even something we would think about even going to court about. And so if we're not even thinking about going to court about them, and Paul is calling legal matters trivial, then how trivial are our grievances that don't even get to that level? But that aside, so Paul says, first of all, that we have to have the right perspective, that we have to understand that these things that we're dealing with in this world, in this family, the stuff that goes on, these grievances that we have, they're trivial. They're not a big deal. Paul says, get it in perspective, people. You're going to judge angels one day. We're going to be made higher than the angels. We're going to rule angels and make decisions of conduct and and behavior. And it's all this stuff Paul has seen that we don't understand. But we're going to judge angels one day. And surely, if that is the case, we must, by the Holy Spirit and by the Scripture and by the presence and being in God's family, we must be discerning enough to be able to evaluate the trivial matters of this life. Of offended rights or bruised relationships or just sorting out who owes who what. We, we have to be able to, in the church to be able to sort those things out. And so the key thing here is discernment. We have to be able to evaluate. We have to have discernment. We have to be able to look and see. We're to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We're to be knowledgeable and aware in the church. We're to discern the holy from the common, it says in Leviticus 10.10. We have to discern between what's trivial and what's meaningful and be able to judge it and be able to come to a moral conclusion and execute it, you know? If we can't do this in the church, if if we're not allowed to judge, if we're not allowed to evaluate, if we're not allowed to discern, then how are we going to tell sheep from wolves? How are we going to do any of the things we're called to do as Christians in obedience if we can't use discernment? Right? Matthew 7 says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Okay, well, how are we supposed to do that if we can't judge? If we can't evaluate and come to a moral conclusion, and act on it, then how as Christians can we obey that? We have to be able to judge. And so the church is built around the idea of right judging, and evaluation, and discernment, and wise action from that discernment. So put it in perspective. Have the right awareness of what is trivial, and what is important, and what is holy, and what is common, and then act in that perspective. The second thing, quickly, is to be humble. The key word I picked out there is shame. Paul says these things to the shame of the church. We've dealt with pride before on two or three different issues with the Corinthian church, right? They were proud of the people that they followed. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Jesus. 
right? They were, they were proud of the sin. that they, they had people sleeping together in all kinds of weird ways, and they were proud about it. They were boasting about it. Well, here's the pride again. Paul's saying these things to the shame of the church because they're proud when they should be ashamed. They're out wheeling and dealing in the Corinthian law courts, and they're winning verdicts over each other in plain sight of the whole city. And Paul says, you Christians should be ashamed of yourself. You're dealing with these family matters out in public. And you're boasting about these victories that you have. You're leaning on and you're depending on the rule of the unrighteous people rather than settling it with the knowledge and the wisdom and the scriptures and the Holy Spirit present within the family. Like, aren't you ashamed, Church of Corinth, that you are going to the ungodly in order to settle disputes? Why are you proud of it? Now, I don't think at Lakeside we're at the point where we're settling things in court too often. At least I hope not. I haven't heard of anything. You know, our grievances with each other don't, don't get settled there, but they might. There's times when we end up there. You know, maybe you, you hire somebody and it doesn't work out, or there's a contract and things don't go as planned, and so, you know, you, you need to settle it in court. Really? So the temptation is there to bring things to the law. But Paul says, hey, you know what? If there's a problem, don't settle it in the courts. Paul says, we have the wisdom to settle these things internally. These are trivial matters that we don't need the world to rule over us in. Bring it to the church and let the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of the scriptures and the wisdom of the family serve this. We have the answers to these problems. Problems, But most of the grievances, like I say, we don't take to court. We don't air them in the public court the way they do in, say, Athens. But let me put it this way. I think we take our grievances and we do air them in the court of public opinion. How many of our grievances get told to the jury down at the cozy corners? Right? We tell our friends and our family all about the moral conclusions we've arrived at about other people. And we want that jury to affirm our moral conclusions. And so we try our cases in the court of public opinion that's around us, right? That if we would win a victory if we could convince our friends that we were right and the other person was wrong. And so we have these little court cases where we have our jury of friends and family or whoever is sitting around the table at the cozy and we talk about, you know, our grievances, and we air them in the public court, and we hope the jury rules in our favor, because then that's a victory for us, and we feel good, right? I'm guilty of it. I mean, I've been known to win arguments with my friends against people who are not even there to defend themselves, right? I mean, that's not a hard court case to win, okay? If the defendant never shows up, you win. And if the jury is all your friends, you probably win. So we have these grievances which we air in public just like Corinth does and we want to win these verdicts to our moral conclusions. Or what if Paul could see Facebook? You want to talk about people trying to settle grievances in the public courts. There is no better example of public grievance settling. And I've been guilty of that too. Facebook is as good a court case for airing grievances. It's all a matter of public record. And it's stored there in your timeline. Just like you can go down to the courthouse now by a matter of public record and you can see the court cases that have been tried there for the last umpteen years. Hey, just scroll back on the timeline. There is a public record of your grievance and the court case in all of the comments and all of the likes and the unfriending that goes on. 
And Paul says, look, you should be ashamed of this because you're settling your grievances in the public. You should be humble and at very least settle these things internally. Don't air your grievances in the public. That's the third thing. Settle these things internally. Paul says, is there not one among you who is wise enough? I like it when Paul gets riled up. Because when Paul gets riled up, he slips into one of my favorite languages, sarcasm. And uh, (laughs) it's a dangerous weapon in teaching. And and we have to resist the temptation to use it because we don't have Paul's authority and we don't have Paul's ability. (laughs) But Paul uses sarcasm in places when he needs to cut right to the heart of the Corinthian church in this case. He says, you were bragging about your wisdom earlier. Don't you have anyone wise enough to settle these trivial matters or are you incompetent? Verse 4 is actually difficult to translate. Some translations translate verse 4 as, um, even the least among you could settle these. Couldn't you bring these to even the least brethren among you? He's saying these things are so simple. You could, you know, the least esteemed person in your church has the wisdom to settle this stuff, Right? The important thing is that it's settled internally. Appoint the least esteemed you among you to do this judging if you have to. In other words, it's simple that this, anybody could do it in the church. But by all means, keep it in the family. Don't be out there shamefully in the public, airing your grievances in the court of public opinion. It's interesting that in Matthew 18, Jesus doesn't talk much about the church because the church hasn't formed yet, right? We talked about that at the beginning of the series. The things that Jesus wanted to teach about the church, he said he was sending his Holy Spirit to teach the things that he wanted to teach. And so through the apostles, we have the teaching of Jesus on the church. He only mentions the church once ever in the Gospels. And the only time Jesus ever mentions the church, it has to do with this topic. It's Matthew 18, 15 to 20. He says, if there's a grievance among you, if somebody sinned against you, then take it to a couple of people in the church and let them sort it out. And if they can't sort it out, then call the whole church and sort it out. And if you still can't sort it out, then get out of the church. Take that person out of the church. So Jesus' only instruction on the issue of ecclesiology, on the issue of the church in the Gospels, has to do with this issue of dealing with grievances. It's the only time Jesus talks about the church. Again, which makes sense, because we don't have the church yet until he leaves. But, so he's not doing a lot of teaching on the church. But the one time he talks about the church, he deals with this issue. And he says the same thing Paul says. If you have a grievance, if there's a sin, if someone's sinned against somebody, take it to the church. Don't take it out to the courts. Jesus doesn't say, if somebody sins against you, hire a lawyer, (laughs) right? He says, take it to the church. And Paul says the same thing. If you have a grievance, these trivial grievances of this life, the answer is not to lawyer up. The answer is to go to the church and the wisdom that's there. Christians are not to use the public systems for settling their problems. Fourth, so do it in humility and settle it internally. And fourth, don't seek victory over one another. Okay, so the way you do this is not to seek victory. Paul says that you have, to have lawsuits against one another is already a defeat for you. You're out, a lawsuit is trying to get victory, right? You're trying to win. And Paul says, you're already beaten. Paul says it's a defeat to even desire victory. To even want to win is already to lose. 
Just the fact you've started a process to win something over another person means you're already defeated. You're defeated in your testimony. You're defeated in your witness. You're defeated in becoming Christ-like. You're defeated in maintaining peace. Your humility and grace and forgiveness and gentleness are all defeated as soon as you seek to win over somebody else. So don't seek what is owed to you. Don't defend your rights. And we're going to cover this more in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul goes off on this topic about rights and how he doesn't... He lays down his rights in order to become anything to anybody in order to win them. So Paul says here, don't try to win a victory. You're already beat. Don't seek what's owed you. Don't defend your rights. Well, what's his alternative then if that's the Christian teaching that we're not to go seeking victory? Paul says, accept wounding instead. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why suffer defeat in all of these Christian areas of humility and grace and forgiveness and Christ-likeness and all of those things where you're going to get defeated in if you seek victory, he says it's better just to accept the wrong, better just to be defrauded. I mean, even Aristotle, even the Greeks knew this. 400 years earlier, Aristotle already had picked up on this. This basic piece of God's truth that it's nobler to suffer a wrong than to do a wrong. And here's Paul having to teach the church that. But more importantly than Aristotle's insight is this over here, right? Isn't this the example that Christ set for us, right? Isn't this what God's grace has enriched us to do, to suffer wrong rather than seek victory? Isn't it the response of humility to suffer a wrong rather than to do a wrong? Isn't it the requirement of unity to accept the defeat, rather than seek the victory. And so these foundation stones that we've been teaching through, they're not just words. It's not just a pretty metaphor. These are truths. These are practical, everyday, every relationship, every issue, reality of a Christian in God's family. This is how we are to stand towards one another. Not seeking to win, not seeking victory over each other, but in humility, bringing things internal to the church, counting them as trivial, And if in the end we can't settle it, then be defrauded or accept the wrong rather than to fight for a victory, which will end up being your defeat. So that's what Paul teaches. And now we come to an objection. First a real one and then the not real objections. So the first objection is this is a rule that Christians are not to take each other to court, that we're not to air these grievances in public, that we need to bring them to the church and deal with them. Okay, so very practically, if you're dealing about legal courts and objections, sometimes you just have to go to court even with other Christians. It's true. Okay, so if you're sitting out there and you're saying there's times when you just have to go to court against Christians, you're right, there are times. Sometimes there's an exception to the rule. When you can't settle it internally, eventually it must go to court because it involves a matter. It could be legal custody or a legal contract There's times for the protection of children when Christians have to go to court even against other Christians in order to settle custody or an endangered minor. There's times when Christians have to go to court in order to extract themselves from a legal relationship that's abusive or it's merely a paperwork fiction, a marriage, right? That relationship doesn't really exist anymore or it's abusive and so you have to go to court even against other Christians sometimes. So there are a few exceptions to the rule. I get it. I'm not up here saying that no Christians are ever going to find themselves in court or that all the Christian lawyers are out of work. I'm not saying that. But even those cases, I would say, 
start in the church, to be settled relationally, to be settled spiritually, to be settled as Christian brothers and sisters. And only after a thorough attempt to judge the manner inside the church, if you have to unbind the legal reality or get legal, you know, to deal with our culture, legal culture, if you have to go to court, then finally you may have to. There is some exception. A second objection, but not a real one. This is the but, but, but. <laughs> but what about verses like Luke six thirty seven? Judge not, and you will not be judged. Paul, you're up here saying that we're all supposed to judge, and the church is a family that you join, and you just have to accept the fact you're going to be judged, and it's good for you to be judged, because people are going to evaluate and use discernment and come to moral conclusions, and it's going to be for the health of everybody. But Jesus himself, in red letters, he said, Luke six thirty seven: Judge not, and you will not be judged. We'll just keep reading. There's very few conflicts in the Bible that I've found that are not solved by simply reading farther. Just keep reading. Luke 36, 37 to 38 says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Could it be that Jesus, put it the other way, Is Paul saying the same thing Jesus is saying? Jesus and Paul are saying the same thing. Okay, the word judge there, the word judge there literally means not to seek the opportunity of a judgment in your favor. So so Jesus is saying, don't seek the opportunity for a judgment. And then he goes on to explain it, as is often a Hebrew pattern. He says, judge not, condemn not, right? He, He then explains it even further. He says, condemn not and you will not be condemned. Well, what does that mean? Condemning is to exercise your right of law against someone. Right? When I condemn you to something, say, I condemn you to 30 days in jail. I'm exercising my right of law over you. Or I condemn you to pay back that debt. You're condemned to do it. So judging is the seeking of an opportunity for a judgment in your favor. And Jesus says, don't seek that opportunity. And then he goes on to say, if you have a right of law, don't exercise it. Don't condemn someone, even if you have that favor. Even if you have that right of law against someone, don't condemn them. And then he goes even further. He escalates it. He says, forgive. So even if something is due in your favor, not only don't condemn it, but also forgive it. And then, like Jesus always does, he goes right over the top. He says, not only don't seek an opportunity for judgment, not only don't exercise your right of law against someone, one, not only forgive something that's due you, even if it is due you, he says, give, and it will be given to you. Don't even stop at forgiving it. In fact, turn the tables and give to the person who owes you, and it will be measured back to you in the way that you give. So if you use a great big measuring spoon, then you'll get measured back in a great big measuring spoon. If you leave a little tiny spoon, then you'll get measured back in a little tiny spoon. That's what he's saying. And so Luke, 30, Luke 7, 36, and 37, or Matthew 7, 1, those scriptures don't contradict how the economy of judging in God's family. It's the same thing. Paul and Jesus are saying the same thing. Don't seek opportunity over each other. Don't seek to condemn one another, even if you have the right. And even if something is due to you in your favor, you should forgive it. And not only should you forgive what is due to you, you should not only suffer the wrong, it's better to suffer the wrong. Jesus says, give back to the person who owes it to you. So what would our church look like if we did that? What would our church look like if we took our grievances against us and we turned the whole idea around? 
Or think about it this way. Think of the debts that you know you owe other people. You know, you maybe said something to them, or they're upset at you, or you're mad at them, or maybe it's a real debt, maybe you owe them money. But imagine if that person came to you like Jesus or like Paul, and they said, you know what, it doesn't matter. You owe me an apology. You, you sh- There's lots of things you owe me, but I forgive it. And not only do I forgive it, but now I'm giving to you. I'm giving to you my relationship, my joy, my happiness, my thrill, my encouragement that you're my friend, right? Maybe you owe your spouse an apology. Maybe you owe your spouse more than that. Imagine if that person came to you not demanding the apology and not trying to win the argument, not trying to gain relational power over you, not trying to win a victory, but that person who you know you owe, they came to you in humility and they forgave you the wrong you did and they went even farther to freely offer you a restored relationship as if you owed them nothing at all. If we dealt with our grievances like that, what would the church look like? Would the church look any different? Yeah. And what would our picture, what picture would we present to the world? Would it look any different to the world? Yeah. People would think, what is going on? These people lay down their rights for each other? I know that guy owes that person something. And yet that is the guy who's giving more money or more stuff or more time or more effort or more joy or more encouragement or more of his relationship. He's pouring more into that guy who owes him. That would blow people away. And that's what Paul and Jesus are talking about. Paul and Jesus are saying the same thing. They're saying, don't seek to win victory. And even if you have a victory, don't claim it. And not only don't claim the victory, but forgive whatever is owed you. And not only forgive whatever is owed you and suffer the wrong, do good in return and pay back and give. And as you do good and as you give, it'll be measured back to you. It is completely upside down from the world's idea of judging. And this is the judging that God expects in his family. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the upside down wisdom of you and your family that you take the foolishness of the world and you turn it into wisdom. That even as that psalm said, what a perfect psalm this morning to start out with, that your precepts make the simple wise. Lord, we are simple. I am stupid. Any semblance of wisdom in me is only because your precepts make the simple wise. And that's true of all of us. We are all simple and we need your precepts and your laws to make us wise. And so, Father, help us be diligent Help us to evaluate. Help us to come to moral conclusions. Help us to be transparent and honest in articulating those moral conclusions. And help us to act on those moral conclusions as they line themselves up with your word. And we will be a family that you uh, hope for us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Paul was mentioning, it is not on us whatsoever. It is truly on Jesus that he may be our wisdom. We are going to sing a song that says, Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. And that can happen when we have that relationship with Jesus. Please stand and join us.